Check, check, check. All right. Hey, as uh, the kiddos make their way and as the students make their way, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 20. Ouch. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. If you do not have your Bibles and you have your YouVersion app, it's on there. If you didn't get the text message, it's uploaded for you. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Man, it feels so much better out in the sun than it does with the... Like, it's cold over here. John and his canopy. I tell you. We feed him grapes in between practice because, you know, he just kind of high maintenance like that. And he just kind of... <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 to 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus along with her sons. Bowing before him, she asked a favor of Jesus. What do you want? He asked. She responded, say that these two sons of mine will sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. First off, I just want to say that I love that a mama had the courage to come to Jesus and ask him to make her boys in charge of things. Like, aren't my sons so cute, Jesus? Aren't they just, aren't they good boys? Yeah. Jesus replies, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from? And they said to him, we can. He said to them, you'll drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left hand isn't mine to give. It belongs to those for whom my father prepared it. Now, when the other 10 disciples heard about this, they became angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them over and said, you know that those who rule the Gentiles, y'all, let's, let's really follow this. You know that those who rule the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officials order them around. That's not the way it'll be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and give his life to liberate many people. Now, there's a lot we could say and learn from this little section of text. A lot. So many leadership lessons, what to do with power, authority, all that kind of thing. What to do with pride and ego and desire and ambition, good, bad, and different. But it seems to me that Matthew wants to draw us into the knowledge of the God who serves and suffers to set us free. Jesus is God with us to show us God's love, to liberate us from the reign of sin and death into God's kingdom of grace and to share in God's life both now and forever. Jesus' life of service, his life of service is God's greatest act of solidarity with our humanity and with us in our suffering. God's solidarity is our salvation. Say it with me. God's solidarity is our salvation. God's solidarity with us is our salvation. Now, when I say solidarity, I mean sharing in another person's situations or feelings and participating in it. Solidarity says, your joy gives me joy and becomes my joy. That's what solidarity says. Solidarity says, your suffering causes me suffering and becomes my suffering. That's solidarity. Jesus wants to serve us and lead us in solidarity toward the goodness, truth, and beauty of God where we are liberated and healed. As God with us and for us, Jesus wants to serve us 
so that we can become as God intended. Now, is that good news? Come on, is that a good news? We outside. We're not in the church building yet, so you can let your inner charismatic come out just a little bit. And to do that, for God to liberate us by divine mystery, God had to come to us, and then he had to become as the reign of sin and death intended. See, he had to come as one of us in order to carry our sickness and share in our sufferings. It was in this self-abandonment, the self-humbling, self-lowering person of Jesus Christ that God as the divine one emptied himself by becoming a suffering servant, humbled himself even to becoming obedient to death so that our death would become his death and so that his life would become our life. What am I doing? I'm announcing gospel truths. Y'all see that? Like these are gospel truths. This is the truth of our faith. But maybe that's part of the problem is that we're so familiar with the truth of our faith that it loses any kind of practical impact in our lives. And I want to encourage us to move out of that and see this truth of our faith as something less abstract and more concrete and more particular and more practical in our lives. But to do that, we have to sit with the story. We have to sit with the story. Everybody say sit with the story. So what we have to do, we have to sit with it. It's like second century church leader named Origen said, he posed the question, he said, who among us or who among those who have read the Gospels does not know that Christ makes all human suffering his own? Like Origen is reading the Gospels and he's like, who can't see this? Who can't see by the reading of the Gospel that Jesus Christ makes all human suffering his own? This is my observation. In Christ, suffering finds healing because suffering finds companionship in the suffering of Christ. In Christ, suffering finds resolution because suffering finds glory in the suffering of Christ. It's in the suffering of Christ. See, in Christ, suffering finds healing because suffering finds hope in the resurrection of Christ. But hope cannot be found unless suffering first visits. In Christ, in Christ, suffering finds defeat. It's like Greg Boyd once said, the cross wasn't so we could walk in the power of the resurrection. The resurrection was so we could walk in the power of the cross. So that when the suffering comes, we know that we do not suffer alone, that the suffering we feel was taken on by Christ himself. Therefore, Christ can own the suffering. Therefore, Christ can bring the healing that my suffering heart desires for the deepest need of healing that all of us have the suffering soul must meet the suffering God and this is to come face to face with the incarnate God in Christ who carried our sickness and shared in our suffering God mourns and weeps in solidarity with those he loves and this is the Jesus Matthew wants us to see as we move toward the passion of the Christ, as we move toward Palm Sunday, and he comes riding in on a donkey, as we see him even before then weep over Jerusalem, as we see him move toward the cross. Matthew wants us to see that God's godness 
finds its meaning and power for us in the context of human history and his embodied engagement with humanity and it results in his togetherness and solidarity with all of us. God is God for us. Say, God is for me. Say, God is for us. Come on, say, God is for you. God loves us. God welcomes and embraces us with compassion. Compassion. Talked about this before, and I was looking up, looking it up, actually, I talked about this same kind of thing about a year ago. It's the kind of thing I think we need to revisit from time to time. Remember, compassion in the biblical language means to be moved in the inward parts. That's what the biblical language means. It's to be moved in the visceral organs or the bowels. It's a gut-level sympathy we call empathy, because empathy is a biblical notion. It's what the Bible calls compassion, and to show compassion is to show care. And the word for care is this old Saxon word that is translated, that, that is kara, and it means to lament or mourn or share in another's person's pain. To show compassion is to share in the suffering of another person. It means to, share, to suffer with, capacio, to suffer with. All forms and expressions of compassion are forms of care. And Matthew wants us to see that when Jesus is moved with compassion, Jesus is then participating in the pain and sharing in the suffering, and he's entering into the experience of the brokenness. That's why Matthew tells us, moved with compassion. It doesn't say Jesus felt sorry for him. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is moved with compassion. He is suffering with their suffering. This is God's solidarity with us, and God's solidarity with us is our salvation. And since we know about suffering and that it can't last, and since we know about Christ and that he's at the work in the midst of the suffering, the question when it comes to suffering and the things we see this week and the things we saw months before and the things we're going to see next week and the week after, the question is, what do we do about it? And here's the thing. We first have to realize what people often do about it. What society tempts us to do is to retreat and hide from the suffering. When we do that, we just avoid it, dismiss it, or deny it. Even like when we come to church, we say, I don't want to come to church and have to hear about the suffering. I just want to come and feel better about my faith and feel better about life. And I say yes and amen to that. But I say yes and amen to that only if first we are honest with the suffering that's happening. Because only when we're honest with the suffering that's happening can our hope be real. Otherwise, our hope's imagined. Some form of escape. Society wants to, wants to dismiss and retreat and deny the suffering that people feel, especially when the suffering is rooted in things like injustice. And see, here's the problem. When we just avoid the suffering and dismiss it or deny it, the seeds of greed, the seeds of the pride of life, of violence, of fear-mongering, of power-grabbing, and injustices of all kinds are planted then in the soil of the fields tended by the rain of sin and death, and all it grows is more suffering. When a church doesn't name things, nothing gets uprooted. What grows is more suffering. Neighbors that are suffering go on ignored in their suffering. The vulnerable who feel forgotten are forgotten or at worst disregarded as well as their past generations of suffering. It becomes the survival of the fittest, the survival of the richest, the survival of the privileged. And the tragedy is we may be tempted to do the same except just in a different way. As Christians, we are just as easily tempted to retreat from the suffering of others to pray about it. Thoughts and prayers. I'm for prayer. Just want to be clear. Pro prayer. 
But we are called to prayerfully serve our neighbors in their suffering rather than turn from our neighbors in their suffering just to pray. When we serve our neighbors in their suffering and refuse to ignore it, we best embody the ministry of Jesus because that's what he did. Listen to the text. Listen to the text. Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. Jesus entered into the suffering of the leper, suffering and healing happened. Jesus entered into the suffering of the prostitute, shame and mercy, and mercy happened. Jesus entered into the suffering of the hemorrhaging woman's debilitating sickness, and liberation happened. And we know this, don't we? We know this. We know that even as you and I have suffered, Christ has promised to share in that suffering with us. We may have forgotten, but we know that this is a gospel truth. And when we have come to know that the Son of Man who came to us as God with us to serve and to give his life Uh, give his life to liberate us we know then the compassion of christ that is found on the cross god's solidarity with us has been shown to us when god came as the suffering servant and took on our suffering let us follow the suffering servant into the suffering of others as servants and when we do the love and compassion of god breaks through and we're all changed y'all we're all changed Because God has promised that in due time, God will turn mourning into dancing. And who likes to dance alone? I mean, you've seen that person. Just kind of dancing alone. I mean, we, we feel bad for that person. God wants us to dance together. But to dance together, we have to mourn together. So where do we begin? So here's the thing, I'm not calling this to some actionable thing because I don't know where it starts because everybody's suffering is different has, to, different, has to be contextualized. But this I can say, sometimes this whole thing of entering into the suffering of others as people who are finding healing in the suffering servant, it begins with one word, solidarity. Everybody say solidarity. It's choosing to enter, choosing to enter. Everybody say choosing. See, that's the word, choosing to enter into the joys or suffering of others with them. I think that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, or verse 15, Romans 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, and what? Weep with those who weep. Now, let's notice what Paul didn't say, okay? Paul didn't say, offer your opinions with those who weep. Paul didn't say, validate the emotional responses of those who weep. Paul didn't say, explain away the circumstances that created the suffering with those who weep. Paul didn't say, argue for another side with those who weep. You know what Paul said? Weep with those who weep. Beloved, if we cannot weep with those who weep, then we have not understood the Son of Man who didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. If we cannot weep with those who weep, then we have not grasped the compassionate mercy and grace of God. If we cannot weep with those who weep, then we have not been refreshed by the cup of Christ. If we cannot weep with those who weep without feeling a need to offer opinions, validate or explain away their suffering, then we need each one of us to humble ourselves and look to Jesus and ask why. But when we can weep with those who weep, we best demonstrate 
presence of Christ in the world. Now, I've been asked several times the past couple of years especially why I and our church's leadership, shepherds and staff, continue to make space in large gatherings to acknowledge certain events and atrocities that happen in society like we did earlier. I've been asked, been asked why we speak to specific things. For that, I have two answers. And please remember this because I think it's important for us as a community. Whether you agree or don't agree, this is, these are the two answers that, that I have to offer. One, it's about awareness. Sometimes we don't know everything that happened, but when we do, we have to give it voice. Over the past 10 years, we have taken time in our worship gatherings to pray over national catastrophes and other events that disrupted society. We're the royal what? Priesthood of God. We can't priestly pray and intercede for things we aren't willing to name. But there's another reason, and I think this is the most important. The second reason is solidarity. When something happens to a demographic of people that is represented in our local church, when something happens to a demographic of people that is represented in our local church body, and especially if it is an historically marginalized people who have generations and family lineage tied up in the historical harms, legacy, and aftermath of injustices simply uh, committed against them because of the color of their skin or nationality, we will and must pastorally, prophetically, and communally give voice to it because what has happened to them has happened to me. What has happened to them has happened to us. There is no us versus them in the family of God. There is only we. And we are the pastors of everyone in the congregation and we are all members of one another. That's what Paul says. And we lean into the words of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But if you will, I just need to say this. If you think about it, the fact that I or any of our leadership are even asked why we would do this speaks volumes concerning the state of our social condition as Christians living in the United States. I mean, isn't it enough and sober-minded to simply acknowledge that what happens in the past always transfers to the present? Pain that isn't transformed is pain transferred. And so too are the things that cause and inflict pain. I mean, do we really think that hatred is beyond the scope of the human condition? Do we really think that somehow a commitment to one's own country, even race, is the primary commitment doesn't somehow implicitly or explicitly make those who do not share my national origin or race as inferior? I mean, to value one thing more highly than another is to do just that, even if I value both. One is still going to receive greater attention than the other. And the Bible teaches us this. It teaches us this in the reign of sin and death. It is what the scriptures teach. And there's consequences to these kind of priorities. Which is why the Christian faith calls us to self-emptying and self-giving love. Self-emptying love. And that's a learned thing. And it takes the church to learn it together. So when I thought about this week, Dr. Sun Chan Ra, who's one of my professors, wrote something and it stuck with me. He said, what happened this week is about the eight dead bodies with a particular focus on six Asian American female bodies whose lives are brutally taken away. They were each made in the image of God and reflected the image of God as only Asians can reflect the image of God. That is now gone and we need to lament. This Sunday is not a hospital visit where we apply a bandage or a suture, sing a few hymns, anoint a person with oil, and move on with the rest of the day. There are people to be 
lamented. And so we weep with those who weep. We weep at the heightened of reported incidents of hateful acts against our Asian neighbors. We weep at the rhetoric that is incendiary and inflammatory toward our Asian brothers and sisters like China virus and Kung flu. The things that stir the hatred among us. The thing that build walls, not bridges. And so we weep. And let us be servants of those who weep. Let us know God's solidarity and follow Jesus into solidarity with others. And let us trust that if we do that together, when God turns our mourning into dancing, as we mourn together, guess what? We'll dance together too. We'll dance together too. Dancing will come, beloved. But until it does, we must mourn with one another if that is what it requires. Did you receive a marble on your way in? Would you uh, grab your marble and put it in the palm of your hand? So if you'll open your, your hand and put it in the palm of your hand. As I was thinking about this whole message, I was thinking about something that our sister and a mother of our faith, Julian of Norwich, once said. And I want to share with you what she said. So grab your marble and, if you will, put it in the palm of your hand and just look at the marble and look at your hand. And just receive these words from our sister Julian. This is a vision she received from God. I want to share it with us. And God showed me a little thing in the palm of my hand. Round like a ball. No bigger than a hazelnut. I gazed at it. Puzzling at what it might be. And God said to me, it is all of creation. I was amazed that it could last and did not suddenly disintegrate and fall into nothingness. For it was so tiny. And God Again spoke to me, it lasts, both now and forever, because I cherish it. And I understood that everything has its own being, owing its being to God's care and love. We need to realize the insignificance of creation and see it for the emptiness it is before we can embrace the uncreated God in love. We will find no rest for our heart or spirit as long as we seek it in insignificant things which cannot satisfy us rather than in God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and beneficent. He is our repose and he desires to be known and is pleased that we should rest in him for nothing less than him can satisfy us. We cannot rest until we are detached from all that is created. When we have done so for love of God, who is all, only then are we able to enjoy spiritual rest. Our lives, our suffering, and our joys rest in the hands of God. And we are secure there. And that, beloved, is why we can share in the suffering of others. Because we are all resting in the hands of God.